Welcome to the Local Food Roundup for July of 2017. I'm Chris LaPaglia. And I'm Ann Rose. We're here to bring you our monthly series of news, views, and interviews about local food here on the Palouse. We've got a great interview lined up for you this month. Uh, full disclosure here, we've both been part of a group called the Greater Palouse Meat Producers who spent the last four and a half years working to make it possible for consumers to buy and farmers to sell locally grown meat. And that's how we ran into Joel, and I caught up with him this last week, and here's his interview. I'm Chris LaPaglia from KRFP, and I'm talking with Joel Hughesby. Tell us what kind of farm operation are you running right now today? Well, I have 400 acres that's certified organic, and I do a variety of crops. Recently, we cut uh, green peas. And I also have grown malting barley as well as uh, uh, protein wheat for bread flour. Are you uh, raising any animals for meat? Uh, only for family purposes. We just did a steer and a hog last week for ourselves. Oh, okay. But you used to do it commercially, right? We did. We, we had our own USDA slaughter establishment, both processing and mobile slaughter trailer that was here on the farm and haul the carcasses into our butcher shop in town. So you've since closed that up and you're not selling any commercial meat then at all? That's correct. Did you talk about your experience butchering meat? I mean, it just started with us going to farmers markets. We were the first people in King County to direct market meat there when they made a variance that allowed you to uh, put uh, cuts of meat frozen in coolers and sell it at farmers markets. And what we found when we did that was the lack of small-scale USDA meat processing that would do custom cuts for what we wanted to do and in small volumes packaged the way that we wanted. And so that led us to uh, starting our own, buying our own butcher shop, uh, which was custom exempt, in other words, farm slaughter, and converting it to a USDA processing establishment. But we still had to get a federally inspected carcass from McCary Meats, which is about 90 miles uh, north of us, and bring them back. So the economics of that didn't work very well. So we decided to build a mobile modular slaughter establishment, which we did. We ran it, operated it for two and a half years, and uh, processed 6,436 head of livestock, about a third each of cattle, sheep, and pigs over that uh, over its lifetime. And we used it at approximately 25% of its capacity, in other words, about a day and a half a week. We would then take the carcasses from there into our butcher shop in town. The problem with the failure of that business was we, over, we overran our cash flow headlights. And in the growth of things, we were always using future growth to finance operations. And, and that was just, it didn't work that way. So you had to get into debt in order to keep on running. Yeah, the mobile slaughter trailer worked. There's no question about that for its uh, effectiveness, for the cost of uh, what it did, for its efficiency, for use of labor, for safety. All of those things worked well, but, but we grew too quickly uh, you know, if I'd have kept everything much more local, in fact, not even gone to Seattle, uh, we were doing over $500 a day retail just out of a 
closet hole in the wall butcher shop uh, in Walla Walla six days a week. Uh, and that's plenty enough business to keep a uh, family farm operating. So I should I should not have had bigger eyes than my plate. You know what I'm saying? Sure. It, it gets tempting to grow. You think, well, this is a good model and we can grow it. But you kind of grew right. too fast. Yes. Uh-huh. Too fast and also with the wrong people. I now say, first two, then what? If you have the right people, that's also a big part of it. So there was some internal fighting that went on amongst family and employees that also uh, didn't work out very well. So you have to be very careful about who you put on your team and what management you put in, put them in charge of. So you think that there's viable business still there? I mean, it's a viable business model? Yeah, I do. I think you, but you need to start small. You need to mind your P's and Q's. You always need to have an eye for quality and consistency. And in my opinion, you also need to honor seasonality, particularly in grass-fed products. You know, the grass doesn't grow in January and February, that kind of thing. And you need to have an eye for the right kind of genetics that fits that particular environment and finishing regime. And if you do all of those things, and there's a lot of ifs in all that, but they're fairly simple if you just follow along, you can, I think, make a good living and be quite viable on a small scale. And by small, I'm talking about maybe a two or three beef a week kind of size. You know, there's still a minimum critical mass. Now that said, can you do all of that custom exempt? Maybe. That is, you know, for, but most people don't have freezers in their garages anymore, and they only think about this coming weekend's meal and barbecue in the backyard is as far out as their thoughts go, so they just go to the grocery store. So we kind of have to go down that road of USDA slaughter and processing because society has changed now, and there's not so many people who have freezers in their garage. <clears throat> How did you find that USDA regulations affected your business? Well, actually, I mean, there's a significant number of hoops to jump through all that process, and you have to uh, take classes and become compliant uh, in order to write your own HACCP plan and have a paperwork trail that you can follow. I mean, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen. That said, it's not that onerous. You can do it, and there's many examples out there in the uh, Niche Meat Processors Network and other public universities, as well as private consultants such as myself, who've offered assistance to small-scale family businesses and cooperatives to jump the regulatory hoops. But that said, regulatory hoops were not really... USDA was very helpful with me. I never had issues with them. It was always a collaborative effort rather than an adversarial relationship. And I actually enjoyed my relationship with USDA. It sounds kind of weird. I mean, here's a farmer inviting the federal government onto his farm twice a week for slaughter, and it was just fine. So you think that, you know, working with them, it was mostly just an effect of your business sort of being in the middle, not not too small, not too big. It was kind of in the middle. You didn't hit that sweet spot. Right. We Mainly, we grew too quickly, and and didn't so the other thing that was critical to all of that was supply chain management in other words we did not have enough livestock for when you're killing uh, 20 head of beef a week and and uh, 30 head of hogs and 
15 to 20 head of lambs a week. We didn't have the land base for that. We didn't have the livestock for that. And you cannot go out and get hodgepodge willy-nilly, finish a little bit of this here, a little bit of that there kind of thing. It has to be consistent, and it needs to be every week. And you get your name on a menu at a restaurant. You get your shelf space in a cooler at a grocery store then that product better be the same and it better be there next week. So we had to source from larger and larger producers from farther and farther out, and they had to have premiums for the protocols that we were covering. It wasn't organic at the time, but was certainly grass-fed. Those things kind of tanked it. But it was not regulatory, and it was not efficiency of mobile modular. It was growing too fast and, and too big too soon. So, so for just one farmer, I mean, you'd have to have a huge ranch in order to really justify having his own slaughter. Yeah, I think that's correct. And so what that person would do would be to, in my opinion, be a contract grower for some other meat company or the butcher or some branding company that was running through a USDA plant in your location. So you would agree that, you know, if you're doing beef, you're going to supply, you know, X number of head finished during this particular window of the year at certain price for certain quality. And maybe there's some kind of a carrot on the one side for better cutout yield and better tenderness, and on the other side, a stick for you know, low carcass quality. Because I've experienced everything in grass-fed particularly where something that, uh, you know, was shoe leather, you wouldn't even feed your dog on the one hand, and on the other, the best steaks I've ever had in my life were finished on pasture. So this consistency thing would matter for those small producers who gather together under some kind of contractual protocols for a company who then purchased them for some brand. Well, you've done some research on uh, USDA slaughter availability here on the Palouse. So where do you think we stand as a community as far as being able to provide our own meat locally? Well, I think on the one hand, based on my research anyways, there's no question that there's demand. So the marketplace pulls production along. On the other hand, there's been a definite lack of USDA slaughter for the most part. You know, the universities have been somewhat problematic to work with on a year-round consistent basis, especially when you deal with the school year and students coming in and classes and stuff like that. And not having a viable business that would want to do slaughter and processing for producers in your area. That said, if that is being addressed now with private enterprise taking up the slack uh, on processing, then the next step in that would be uh, enough producers who would be interested in either marketing their own meat at a farmer's market or producing under certain protocols for a contract grower or a contract marketer. That part I see actually as being maybe the most problematic. In other words, it's the producer side of things getting together because anytime you try to get farmers together, it's kind of like trying to herd cats through tulips. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> and getting them all on schedule. And... On schedule with the same kind of quality and consistency and price points when everybody has their own idea. They, they love these cows because they've been in their family for X number of years or because they're a certain color or a certain breed or whatever, but not because it will fit within whatever those frameworks are that are consistent with the neighbors or whoever else is going in together. I've seen it all over the board.
and you can't have that when you start getting your your name on a brand or your 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 livestock you know group marketing under one brand it needs to have consistency so that's even a bigger hurdle than getting local butchering and slaughtering on site i think it is i think it is a much bigger hurdle the the, the, the local butcher slaughter thing that's all uh, brick and mortar, you know, infrastructure type stuff. You can build it, you can buy it, you can, that part can be done. But the harder part is working with people. Like I said, first who, then what? You get the right people who figure out what they want to do and do it well and do it together coordinated, then you can do anything. I have no doubt. And I guess that's true across the board. So, uh, it doesn't matter if it's in meat or selling widgets to Timbuktu. It's the same deal. How about the Prime Act? That's uh, Congress has brought it up again. They're trying to get the Prime Act through. Do you think you could... Uh, yeah, I think that's really cool. It's a great idea. You wanna and add? as I understand it, the Prime Act only allows the states to then set up their own uh, meat processing protocols, if you will. Perhaps Idaho would be one of those states that would do that. There's still a long ways down the road, you know, maybe several years, if at all, for state legislators to enact their own meat processing regulations, which, by the way, many states did have several years ago until they all acquiesced to the USDA for that and the feds. That said, even if you go with the states, you're still going to need to jump through certain protocols, just like with FISMA, the Food Safety and Modernization Act and the Federal Food and Drug Administration, but on the USDA side with meats, you're still going to need to have some kind of protocols that go into that you're not killing diseased or sickened animals, that there's no specified risk materials, it's like mad cow disease type stuff getting into the product these kind of things. So even if you go with a state uh, program, in my opinion, you're still going to take on 90 to 100 percent of all the stuff that USDA is already doing. I don't see how it could be much better or different, except that it's lo more local, which oh. would be great. Now, the other side of it is most state budgets, at least in my experience, are always looking for money and always short of it. And so good luck trying to figure out how you're going to hire inspectors to enforce that system. I don't know. So it could get started, but it, yeah, if the Prime Act does get passed, then there'll be a lot of hoops still to work through. There will be. I mean, it's a step in the right direction, but it's no silver bullet. And how does that relate then, I mean, to custom exempt? The custom exempt, what kind of regulations are in place there for the meat? Well, the USDA still comes through once a year to look at those facilities and make sure that they're sanitary and stuff like that. But I still don't see how that a state will allow somebody to slaughter animals without some inspector in place and sell it to the public. If that, I would love it if that could happen. I just don't see that it's going to. Right now, we're absolutely a Sue Happy uh, group of people and liability is through the roof and one person just thinks that they got sick on eating some ground beef that they by the way didn't cook properly on their own grill in their own backyard and guess what they just bought the ranch so if you don't have these other protocols in place where yep you know the inspector was there he saw it happen he he knew that your temperatures were in control and compliance and that your facility was in clean and good working order and that you maintained it properly you don't have all that stuff in place. I mean, those things also protect the producer or the butcher from uh, erroneous liability issues from a public who can be 
very problematic if they want to be. So if you're selling custom exempt meats, where you sell the whole or the half an animal, mm-hmm. then really you're taking a risk unless you have to sell it to friends and neighbors, people you know and trust. There you go. And so that's absolutely right. So you either go the USDA route, in my opinion, which even would happen under the this uh, act where the states do it themselves, or you need to stay small, custom exempt like this to friends and family and a few others who are likely not going to be as far. When you get farther and farther removed from the producer and from the butcher into the big cities and into restaurants and grocery chains and stuff like that, liability goes up exponentially. But you keep it all local in your own hometown, you know, and down the creek bottom and across the across the way, across town and stuff like that with people you know, you go to church with, you do business with in town, stuff like this. Those people are, are the ones that you can, uh, you know, they know you, they know you're not going to do a bad job and they're not going to sue you if there was something wrong, so to speak. Not like it would happen in a grocery store thing with a big recall. Well, would you say that then the shorter the food chain the safer the food chain is yes the shorter it is the better and absolutely that, and, and so you know if even like in crowd cow for instance if you take if you take custom exempt and then you bring it down as long as there's a name on that carcass before it's slaughtered then you can get down to smaller portions of meat no you cannot sell that at a grocer or a restaurant but yes you can sell it down to a freezer bag package if you will for somebody uh and I would advocate for frozen versus fresh uh, who can stick it in the freezer in their kitchen. And I think that's probably the best way to go because those short and uh, short distances and good relationships mitigate or do away with much of the regulatory need for someone to ensure that there's a safe, unadulterated product. So you could sell a cow, then you're saying, to 100 people and butcher or 16 it. or 8 anyway Six, yep. 8 or 16 I guess instead of 4 instead of 4 okay so you mm-hmm. can sell a cow to 16 people and the difference is is there's an assumption that those 16 people if they wanted they could walk over to your farm or drive over and look at the cow first they certainly could Be they safer. could look online I mean you know we still live in a modern age you can take pictures you can do virtual tours you can set up a website they can put their name on these animals until there's a tipping point, if you will, just like in Crowd Cow, and then the animal gets slaughtered once there's enough people whose names are on it. And that can all bypass some of this federal regulations. Okay, well, you mentioned the food safety, FSMA, the Food Safety... Food, food Safety and Modernization Act. There you go. Well, you talk to us a little bit about that and how it might affect your business. Well, it doesn't really affect meat because uh, that's the USDA side of it. Um, and so uh, on the FISMA side, the FDA side, I mean, that, that affects other things like if you're making flour, for instance, on your farm or jam or some other food product besides meat. That's on the FDA side. But that said, whether it's on USDA or FDA, if you haven't documented it, it didn't happen. So everything has to be written down on paper and take pictures for Pete's sake. And you keep all of these records. And and there's certain uh, hoops that you'll need to jump, application processes. There'll be some inspections before you even begin operations. And, of course, during operations, that 
highly variable depending on your industry and whether you're on the FDA or USDA side. But both of them are trying to uh, reduce the risk uh, to the public. I think they go a little bit overboard when you talk about small producers who are much less likely to be a risk to the general public. Certainly much less public would buy from them in the first place on the one hand and on the other hand if my name is personally on that product and I'm not just one generic producer among thousands in some big meat packing house kind of a conglomeration then I'm going to do everything in my part to make sure that my customer is happy and that they buy from me again and that means that things are going to be done well and clean and in a, in a free market system like that if you didn't that person would not buy from you again, would tell the neighbor and the friend and the co-worker, don't buy from them, it was dirty, it was un bad quality, and you'd be out of business. So it's kind of a self-regulating thing if you stay small and direct with people who know you and have a relationship with you. So in your opinion, you actually need regulations then for uh, an industrial food chain. You're shipping the food. You, you, you start moving up the food chain, you start moving up the food ladder and picking the fruit higher on the tree, then you must have regulations. I don't see anything that would mitigate that, or, or I think it's actually a good thing. It's a necessary thing given human nature and people. And if they can get away with something, they will. But you stay small and direct then it kind of self-regulates and doesn't need those paperwork trails. I could see that, uh, but the, the FSMA doesn't have exceptions, or does it, for a certain, the lower no. certain well, size? No, well, they do have some exceptions for smaller scale facilities versus the bigger ones, and there's certainly some ways that you can accommodate things like potable water and wastewater on a small scale that are still cost-effective compared to the big plants that's got to have whole huge water treatment systems, huge ones. So there are some things that, that are a little bit scale appropriate, but even in USDA on the meat side of things, uh, when you go down that trail, there is a certain critical mass, as we talked earlier, of, of, of several hundred head a year need to go through whatever this facility is in order to justify the overhead and the paperwork trail that someone will have to administer. So just because you have to do that much paperwork, it has a cost, and you need to sell a certain amount just to kind of get in the game. That's correct. And of course, being that's a, part of that's a variable cost, in other words, the daily, you know, paperwork trail, and most of it's fixed cost, though, where it's going to be the same amount of paperwork whether you did 10 head or 100 head that week. Uh, you're still going to monitor the same temperatures. It'll take the same amount of time to do that, the same amount of time to fill out the form, the same amount of time for the inspector to look over the form. And so you can spread some of those costs out by being larger. That said, you can simplify some of the paperwork trails and combine some of the things on the same form if you're smaller to a certain point. How do you see the future of local food in the near future? I think it's a mixed bag. I think it's going to go both ways. I, I, I think that on the one hand, local food has some huge challenges in front of it when it has to compete against cheap product from multinational corporations that bring beef in from all over the world if they don't have enough local stuff, that kind of thing. It's hard to compete against that on the one hand, all subsidized by the government through corn that runs through the feedlots and the cattle that finish there. That's hard to compete against. The flip side of that is there's also a huge movement of people who want grass-fed, who want organic, 
who want to know their producer, who want to have a small-scale butcher shop that doesn't have these huge recall problems and stuff like that. And so it's kind of a, a two-edged thing. Really good on the one side going big corporate distance conglomerate and on the other side small simple humble local relational and I see both happening at the same time so they're both kind of they're both growing and both food is a growth yep. industry but the middle part is gone in other words the butcher shop or the slaughterhouse that would do the several thousand head type of thing you're either going to do two thousand head a day or you're going to go do two head a day but you're not going to do 200 head a day. You see what I'm saying? The middle guy is out. You're either going to be small or you're going to be big. And the same kind of cross with vegetables and wheat and flour. All, yep. The whole board. I was just talking to my uncle about that yesterday, about just the regulations for hiring people, whether you're holding a knife in your hand or working livestock or changing irrigation. If you're a family farm, then your kids are kind of exempt from many of those kind of things. As soon as you get big enough to start hiring people, then you start going into the regulations. So you're either going to be small and take everything in-house of your own family and this kind of thing and yourself, or you're going to be big and corporate where you can hire, uh, you know, accountants, attorneys, uh, compliance uh, personnel to, to handle all the overhead of the regulatory work that needs to happen but the middle people they're being squeezed out no way there's no money in it not in the middle no well that you've given us a lot of food for thought uh, one last quest have you eaten anything good local lately any good local food <laughs> well uh we don't eat out of restaurants very often so i can't say that way but uh as far as at home goes all the time. I mean, there's many meals where the entire meal outside of the condiments is what we grew or raised from the flour that we grew from the wheat that we milled to the uh, livestock that we grew, even processed, even smoked and cured. Uh, canned peas uh, last week from uh, the peas that we grew, uh, I grew several million servings of green peas that were harvested last week. We're very much into local uh, and food security, food self-sufficiency are very high on my list. But beyond that is just the whole thing, not only of pride of, of doing it yourself, uh, but also of the flavor, the quality, and just the, the, mm, the family gathering around meals for, with things that were grown on your farm. Can't put that a means a lot that. to me. That's all priceless. Isn't it? You can't buy that, you know? It's either priceless or worthless. It's free or you can't afford it. Take your pick. Well, that's it for this show. It's a lot to digest. And as always, the views presented in this program do not necessarily represent the views of KRFP, its board, staff, or members. And remember that local food may not be free. But it can set you free. Thanks for listening. Roly-poly, eating corn and taters, yeah. hungry every minute.